Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture tonight. Hebrews chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 3. We've uh, been teaching a series on the subject of angels for the last uh, number of weeks. Tonight I want to talk to you about... um, I I really don't know if this will be the last uh, service in the... um, uh, the series, because uh, I'm really not sure if I'm going to finish up what I've got in my heart um, to, to share. Uh, if I do, then uh, then this may be the last one. But then again, I'm kind of toying with the idea of having a question and answer session next Wednesday night on the subject of angels. Um, I, I just don't know. Just not sure. So anyway, tonight I want to um, teach on uh, one thing that's very much on my heart, what we've been trying to, to get to ultimately in this series, and that is how to put your angels to work. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of the angels, the Holy Spirit inspires the writer of the book of Hebrews, who I believe to be Paul, to say, Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Another translation says, Are not they all spirit servants sent forth to minister for? Notice it does not say minister to. It says minister for those who shall be the heirs of salvation. So uh, if if... Language means anything. If the Holy Ghost was uh, accurate and correct in what he inspired the writer to write, it's saying that angels are sent here to serve for us. Now, in Galatians chapter 3, if you want to turn back there, we'll, we'll establish that that is us. Because uh, it seems to me that, uh, and I never have understood this, but it seems to me like people will go to great lengths to try to explain away why the Bible doesn't mean them. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us. Everybody say us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus and what it accomplished for us. Verse 14, that or so that here's the purpose. Here's the reason that Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law. It wasn't that God was lonely and he needed children. It's not that God had already created heaven and he needs somebody to populate the place. He did it for a reason. He did it so that he could restore to mankind what we had lost in Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. We were made in, we meaning mankind was made in the image of God after his likeness. In other words, God made man as much like himself as was possible. Now, I don't know about you, but that statement gets me every time I say it. We have to be careful that we don't think, you know, as close as humanly possible because God's not a human. How close is it? How possible is it for God to make somebody like himself? Well, if there's any difference at all, it's going to be a shade of difference. That shade of difference would be that he's the creator of the universe and we are the created being. But what other difference would there be? He's God. Everybody in the body of Christ will say God can do anything. Well, okay, here's something God did do. He made man as much like himself as is possible. That's what it means after his likeness and in his image. Well, as such, he gave man authority, made man in his image. He made man of the same substance, same spiritual substance, same spiritual nature. And he gave man authority here on the earth. And man gave up that authority when he disobeyed God and obeyed what uh, or followed Satan's suggestion and ate of the forbidden tree. So God sent Jesus to the earth to restore man to the position that he had before the fall. What did he do? He had to take out the old spiritually dead nature that we gained from Adam's sin and replace that with his own nature to make us once again in his likeness and in his image. See, we think naturally. We think, well, man looks like God. And and there's probably some truth to that. The things that the Bible tells us where God uh, caused him to uh, pass in front of uh, Moses and uh, allowed Moses to see his glory, it identifies God's face, it identifies God's hands, it identifies the Bible, identifies God's uh, eyes, the Bible identifies the mouth of God, the Bible identifies God's back parts, he let Moses see his back parts. Uh, well, if there's back parts, there's got to be front parts. Otherwise, how would you distinguish back parts from any other parts? So it sounds a lot like man's physical form. But that's really not what it means when it says that God made us in his image and after his likeness. So Jesus came to restore us back to that place of authority. But once we're restored to that place of authority, God's plans clearly is not to take us to heaven so we can enjoy heavenly bliss and eternal security from there. His purpose was to provide us something so that we could recapture and reassert 
the authority that man was given here on the earth. That's why verse 14 is so important in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law and being made a curse for us. Here's the sacrifice that, verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. That the blessing of Abraham, in other words, all the blessings, all the benefits, all the things that were a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham on a promise of a Savior to come are now ours because Jesus has fulfilled that promise and made the sacrifice. That or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Thank God it's not a promise for us anymore. It was a promise to Abraham, but it's not a promise to us. It's a reality for us. Abraham looked to the promise fulfilled. He looked to our day and wanted, wanted what we've got. We look back and see the things God did for Abraham, and so many times we think naturally, we think, oh, wow. Wouldn't it be great to have God do stuff like that for, for us like he did for Abraham? Abraham looked at us and said, oh, wow. Someday. I've got a promise of this, and there's some benefits and some blessings that I'll enjoy here on the earth. But the Bible says that God preached salvation or preached Christ, preached the gospel of Christ unto Abraham. Abraham saw what we would get. That was one of the reasons that made him so strong in faith or helped him to develop strong faith in the promise of God. So it goes on to say um, in verse, skip over with me to um, verse 26. For it says, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So he's got to be talking about salvation. Now, remember, the angels are ministering spirits, spirit servants sent to minister for those who shall be heirs, the recipients of salvation. Galatians 3 says that that's us. So they are spiritual servants for us. For uh, you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one, equal in other words, in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, how many of you are Christ? You fit the criteria of having accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now you're a child of God. For if you And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. Now he's not talking about the promise of the Spirit. That's a reality for us. What promise is he talking about? He's talking about the earthly authority and blessings that God made promise to Abraham of here. So Jesus died on the cross so that you could be restored into God's image and God's likeness, receive God's nature, receive the promise of the Spirit of God. That Spirit which was promised is now ours. But it goes further, it says, so that the blessing of Abraham can be yours here on the earth. Now that's important for you to realize as we look at what the angels are going to do for us and how we put them to work. Turn back with me to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. Children of Israel have come out of Egypt. You remember they spent 400 and some odd years in bondage in Egypt. The Bible tells us that uh, when they were released finally after the, the ten plagues that uh, was poured out upon the Egyptians and their, all their land, it says that Pharaoh finally relented and said, okay, get out of here. I, I don't want any more to do with you. And then after they were gone, the people raised such a stink about it because of the death of the firstborn, which was the tenth plague. Everybody is in such agony, they want to take it out on somebody. And they can't imagine anybody better to take it out on than those slaves that Pharaoh just let go. So Pharaoh changes his mind and comes after them. They're backed up against the Red Sea. They've got mountains on one side. They've got mountains on the other side. They've got Egyptians in front of them. Behind them, they've got the Red Sea. You remember the story? Moses cries out to the Lord, and God says, what are you crying out to me for? Now, to me, that sounds like the perfect place to cry out to the Lord. But the point that God was making is... I've already told you what to do. I've already told you how to do it. You stretch your rod out over the sea. He said, you divide the sea. Now, folks, that is a tremendous, tremendous statement. God's telling Moses, Moses, haven't you yet learned you're the one with authority? You divide the water. It looks like there is no way out, so make a way out. I'm with you, and that rod, that little stick, that little shepherd stick, it's not the big staff with the crook, you know, the hook on the end. That's not the one he's talking about. It's talking about the little rod that was used for protection. It's the rod that the shepherds would throw at snakes and throw at other animals, predators, and so forth, trying to run them off. That's the little rod that is the authority, the symbol of authority that is a type of the name of Jesus for the Christian. 
So he said, you take the rod and stretch it out over the water and divide the sea. And he did, and it did. And they went over on dry ground. Now, the Bible says that that was a type of salvation. Because you know the story, you remember the story, after Israel starts getting to the other side, Pharaoh decides he's going to chase after them. There's a a cloud, a pillar of fire that separates Israel from uh, uh, Pharaoh's army. But all of a sudden, just as they start getting to the other side, that uh, the pillar of fire lifts. And so Pharaoh chases in after them with their army. And they're drowned. The water comes back together and Pharaoh and all of his armies are drowned. And Israel goes over on dry land. God makes a very dis- big distinction between how the people operated in that circumstance. Now, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it tells us that going through the Red Sea was a type of salvation. It says they were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea as we are baptized into Christ. So what does that mean? That means they were delivered from bondage and their enemy's power was destroyed. That's salvation. But they're not home yet. Part of the promise that God made to Israel through Moses was I'll lead you to the promised land. They haven't gotten to the promised land yet. Which is the very same type as God not taking us to heaven as soon as we get saved. They're not home. So what do they do? God takes them to Mount Sinai. And upon Mount Sinai, he gives them the law. He issues the law. He tells the the Ten Commandments, the tables of stone, along with the other things. Uh, Ten Commandments was not the whole of the law. But he delivers all the law, the law of restitution, the law of uh, 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 cleanliness, the law of what you can eat and what you can't eat, all these other kinds of things. God gives them on Mount Sinai. Now, I want you to notice in Exodus chapter 23... What God says about their trip and arrival at the promised land. Now, most of us think promised land is heaven. Well, let's read and see if that's what it is. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. He says, behold, I send an angel before thee. Do you know the angel had something to do with the promised land? Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way. The word keep means to protect you and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. So it says the angel has two jobs. Number one, to protect you till you get to the promised land. And number two, to make sure the promised land is realized in your life. Now, what's the promised land? Well, we know the promised land is when they cross the river Jordan. They go into the land of Canaan. First thing they find is the city of Jericho. Walls around the city, those walls fall down. They take the city of Jericho, capture it, burn, destroy everything. It's, a, it's an offering unto God. The first city they come to, they're, not, they're forbidden from taking anything, any of the spoils of it. It's, a, it's an offering, literally the tithe unto God, the first fruits unto God. Now, is Canaan land a type of heaven? Is the promised land that is spoken of, that the Old Testament gives us a type of or an example of what belongs to us, is that heaven? Well, I've got a couple of questions that will help you answer it for yourself. If it's heaven, how are we going to have enemies there? The land of Canaan was filled with their enemies. Is that what heaven's going to be like? You're going to have battles to fight. You're going to have cities to take in heaven. Now, the Bible says everything that could harm you has been done away with by the time you get to heaven. That means Canaan cannot be a type of heaven. Because they still had a possessing to take. They still had to take possession of this land. It was still up to them. And that's what the Bible says the angel is to help them do. The angel is to help them take hold of, to make real in their lives, that promised land, that land here on the earth that belonged to them because of the promise God had made to Abraham hundreds of years before. The land of Canaan is a type of what belongs to you and me, the blessing of Abraham here on the earth Prosperity, healing, peace, well-being in every area, God's provision, overcoming any obstacle, overcoming every enemy, defeating every enemy, and so forth. In other words, it's a part of the authority that God has restored to man through the sacrifice of Jesus. Are you out there? Is there any way to argue with that? I want to solidify this in your thinking. So many times it's easy for us to say, well, the promised land is heaven. Nope. The promised land is the blessing of Abraham here on the earth. It's what belongs to you because you're saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, I said that in a, in a poor way because I left, the, I left the idea that somebody, if somebody's not filled with the Holy Ghost, then it doesn't belong to them. That's not what I mean. The infilling of the Holy Ghost is part of the promised land blessing. 
It's anything that comes following salvation that is a part of what God promised Abraham here on the earth. All that stuff that the devil tells you is just for the Jews, that's the promised land. And that's what the Bible says Jesus died on the cross for you and me to have. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, all believers in other words, through faith. Because there is no difference between Jew and Greek. There's no difference between male and female. There's no difference between a slave and a free man. There's no difference between anybody in the body of Christ. Everybody has the same blessings available to them. Well, how are those blessings going to be realized? Well, the Old Testament example was that the angel would help you enter in. Folks, I'm here to tell you that's still the work of the angels today to help you enter into the baptism of the Holy Ghost, healing, prosperity, the peace of God, well-being, victory in every area. You've got a work of the angels, a commissioned from heaven work that the angels perform to help you receive everything that God promised you through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. Back to verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. So what's he talking about? Two things. Number one, protection. We looked a lot at what the Bible says about angels and their work in protecting mankind. We saw many examples of deliverance that came by angels, right? Why? Because that's their job. To keep you in the way. To keep you in the way. Second thing. Is to bring you into the place which I have prepared for thee. What place has God prepared for us? The place in Christ Jesus where we have authority and exercise authority over the devil and all of his works here on the earth. Not authority over each other. Not authority over anybody else. But authority over the devil and all of his works. Well, what are the works of the devil? We know sickness is a work of the devil. We know poverty is a work of the devil. We know that unrest is a work of the devil. So what does that mean? That means the angels will help you enter into healing prosperity and peace and any number of other things that we could identify anything that's the opposite of the work of the devil that's what the angels will help you enter into see what i didn't think i'd get very far tonight i want to make sure you get the point i don't want to just cover over it and say oh yeah what pastor might say about the angels they do something yeah well it was good whatever it was no i want to make sure you understand Now, here's where the good part comes in. I mean, that's good enough. But here's where the good part comes in. Verse 21. Here's what he says to the people of God, the Old Testament saints or servants, really. Here's what he says to people that were not righteous. People that that had just received the promise uh, or I'm sorry, had just received the law. They know they're not right with God. They've never been right with God. They can't stand before God with any sense of without a sense of condemnation. It's impossible for them. And the law is just going to solidify that in their thinking for every moment of the rest of their lives. He says, beware of him, the angel, and obey his voice. Provoke him not. Now, if we stop right there, we have to understand and have to accept that you can provoke an angel. Right? If he says, don't provoke him then it's certainly possible to provoke him. Right? So he says, beware of him. Obey his voice. And provoke him not. For he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, folks, that's the best evidence we've got that this angel is not Jesus. Because Jesus is the forgiver. He is the pardoner of transgressions. Not this angel. Not the angel that will bring you into the blessings of the promised land. Not the angel that will bring you into Abraham's blessings that belong to us here on the earth. In other words, the way you establish it, whether you obey or provoke him, that's the way it's going to be. He won't reason with you. He won't try to work things out. There's no negotiating with him. Which means that if you're going to accept the angel's help to enter into the victory... Of the blessing of Abraham, you're going to have to be very specific and very precise in the way we deal with this angel. I would submit to you that that's why most Christians fail to receive the blessings of Abraham. Number one, they don't know that angels are there to help. And number two, since they don't know that the angel is there, they don't know what the principles are to operate with the angels. 
they mess up the principles. In ignorance, for the most part, I would guess. But nevertheless, even in ignorance, that's what it means. Obey him. Beware of him. Obey his voice. Because he's not going to mess around with you. What you establish things to be will be the way the angel operates. I'll explain that more as we go. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't finish verse 22. Um, No, I'm sorry. I didn't even get to verse 22. Let me go back to verse 21 again. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice, so obedience is the key. If thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak. Okay. That tells us something. Then I will be an enemy unto your enemies and an adversary unto your adversaries. Now, folks, God's telling us right up front, here's why so much of the church world suffers defeat. Because obeying the voice of the angel is obeying God's voice. Or we could say it this way. Obeying the angel is obeying God's word. Because notice he says, obey his voice, the angel's voice, and Obey whatever I speak. He says those are one and one and the same. There's no distinction. God makes no distinction between obeying the voice of the angel and do all that he says. In other words, what he's telling us is the angel's voice is the word of God. Obedience to the word of God is number one, how you get the angels to work for you. Can you see that? Verse 23, for mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. He said, the angels will bring you into the promised land and I will destroy your enemies. That's what cut them off means. I'll destroy your enemies. So the angel's job is to bring you into the promised land, bring you into the blessings of Abraham. The adversary part, the enemy part, God takes care of. Now, I want to talk about this for a little bit, but I want to give you, I really don't know how to identify this uh, as far as a category. And I know everybody likes lists, but I don't know exactly how to list this. There are, in my opinion, three specific ways that you put angels to work. The first category is three parts, though. The first category is speak the word, obey the word. And send your angels out. The second way you put your angels to work is through prayer. The second way you put your angels to work is through worship. Those three things, those three principles are shown throughout the scripture. And we'll show, we'll take examples of each one. I'll go through them again for you in just a second. Step number one, or the first way to put your angels to work, is three parts. Speak the word. Obey the word and or commission your angels. Send them out to work. The second way that you put your angels to work is through prayer. The third way that you put your angels to work is through worship. Now, did I go slow enough for those or do I need to go through them one more time? Is that enough? You might need them again. Okay. First way, three parts. Speak the word. Obey the word. And send your angels forth. Second way, prayer. Third way, worship. Now let's take these one by one. Um, I don't want to do this. Um, in in um, Well, I, I, let's do it this way. Let's talk about some examples of where people provoked them. Let's look at some examples in the Word of God where people did provoke the angel and failed to receive the promise. Let's use these same people that God says these words to as the first example. Less than two and a half years after God says, I'm sending my angel forth to bring you into the promised land, we come to Numbers chapter 13. They come to the edge of the promised land. This is less than two years later, maybe two and a half. It's the period of time between when the Red Sea is crossed which is a type of salvation, and they come to the edge of the promised land. Most Bible scholars would agree that that was a two to a two and a half year period of time. They go to Mount Sinai where they are now in Exodus chapter 23. We don't know how long it took them to get there. Could have been a couple of months. I mean, we're traveling with about 7 million people, so it's not like they can take the freeway. 
So however long it took them to get there, however long they camp there and they stay there for several months, then they travel to the edge of the promised land. They travel to the Jordan River. But they get to the Jordan River to where Kadesh Barnea is. And in Numbers chapter 13 tells us that they rebel against God and say, well, we looked at, we sent spies into the promised land. We came back with the fruit of the land. Everything's good. It's a good land, just like God said. But boy, there's big people in there. Now, in two and a half years, they've forgotten that God has just destroyed on their behalf the strongest army on the face of Israel, or on the face of the earth. The Egyptian army was the superpower of the day. Nobody could hold a candle to the Egyptian army. Egypt ruled everything that it wanted to rule. It was the superpower of the day. But somehow or another, that doesn't factor into their thinking. They're afraid because there's a wall around Jericho. And so what do they say? They say, we can't take this land. And the Bible tells us that they rebelled against God. Now, uh, why don't you look with me over to Numbers chapter 13. I want you to see a couple of scriptures in Numbers chapter 13 and Numbers chapter 14. Now remember, obeying the voice of the angel is obeying God's word. God's very specific about saying the promised land is a good land, is a land that flows with milk and honey, and it's your land. The people, however, rebel against God's word by saying, we can't take the land. So in so doing, they're provoking the angel. And Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 8 calls it, well, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul says by the Holy Ghost, he says, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation. What's he talking about? He's talking about Numbers 13. It's called the provocation. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works for 40 years. In other words, Numbers chapter 13, where they sentenced themselves to 40 years in the wilderness wandering around. When they could have gone into the promised land. The angel had been commissioned. The angel had been sent to do the work to bring them into the promised land. They said, "Uh uh-uh, no way. What God said can't be true for us. So they're speaking against God's word and it freezes the angel from being able to do his work. And in Numbers chapter 14, I think it's verse 21 or I'm sorry, it's verse 28. God delivers what is the rule, the unchanging, eternal rule where mankind and God are concerned. God says to Moses, say unto the people, as truly as I live. Now, as truly as I live, whenever God says as truly as I live, that's not just saying, uh, oh, by the way. As truly as I live, God is saying, as real as I am eternal. So real is this statement. God cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his existence. He cannot deny his nature. When he says, as truly as I live, it means this is the way it is and this is the way it's always going to be. Just like God's eternal, this is eternal. Here's an eternal, unchanging principle. Because God's eternal, God's unchanging, that's what this is. As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Now, wait a minute. I thought Exodus 23 just said the angel is going to bring them in. Yeah, unless they provoke the angel. How did they provoke the angel? They spoke against God's word. So if speaking against God's word provokes the angel and keeps him from working for you, then the reverse of that would be true as well. Speaking God's word puts the angel to work. This angel that's already been commissioned, sent from heaven to bring them into the promised land, would have brought them into the promised land, would have brought them the same victory that they got 40 years later when they decided to obey what God said. If these people had simply said, wow, this looks big for us, but God said he is sending an angel. If they had said, we have never seen a wall, even in Egypt, we've never seen a wall around a city like Jericho. But hey, God said he's sending the angel. He said he's sending us before the Canaanites. These are Canaanites. Okay, let's go do it. No matter what they thought, no matter how they felt, they would have done it, could have done it. It would have happened, except they spoke against God's word. And what did they say? They said, oh, it would have been better for us to die in Egypt. Too late for that. Okay, on second choice, maybe we could just die in the wilderness. God said, okay, we can do that. And that's what happened. They died in the wilderness. Over a 40-year period of time, everybody that was of this generation died in the wilderness. Why? Because they spoke against God's word and it froze the angel from doing his work. Now, this is what it means where it says, he will not pardon your transgressions. 
There's no negotiating with the angel. You, you can't back up and say, oh, angel, I didn't mean that. Because that's exactly what they do the next day. As soon as Abraham, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Moses, excuse me. As soon as Moses tells the people this stuff, okay, one year for every day that you were in there spying out the land, that means 40 years. Then the people said, oh, no, we don't want that. Moses, we were just kidding. We'll take it. Let's go do it. And they tried. The next day they went out. Moses said, don't do it. God's not with you. There's no negotiation on this. You can't back up on what you said before. There's no negotiation. You've already said you can't do it. God said, okay. Have it your way. Die in the wilderness instead. They go out against the, the, the uh, in a, a little skirmish, just a minor battle, and get whipped all over the place. They come back with their tail between their legs, and Moses said, told you. See, it wasn't your power that you were going to do it anyway. They're afraid because they think they're weak. Well, it wasn't your strength that was going to get it done to begin with. Didn't you hear me tell you about the angel? That must have been an important element. Because the next day they're defeated soundly. See the point? Okay, I want you to see something else. Uh, Along this line, I want you to turn with me over to uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. I know your Bible just automatically opens to Ecclesiastes. So I'll give you a minute to find it. Find it? You got the right kind of Bible? It's page 745. I want to read a couple of scriptures here to you. I want to start with verse 1. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. That means listen instead of talk. For they consider not that they do evil. I get the point that he's saying. He's saying you need to be real careful when you go to the house of God. Now, he's not just talking about church. He's talking about giving attention to the word of God. That's true in church or should be true in church. It's probably less true in our day than, than it should be as far as churches that preach the word. But it's, this is what it means. It means be ready to listen when you come to church. Because this is where God intends to speak to you. Don't spend your time talking. Because that's the sacrifice of fools. That's what foolish people do. Foolish people think their talking matters. Well, only at certain times. There are times where you should really choose not to talk and to be quiet instead and learn. That's what it's saying here in in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 or chapter 5 verse 1. Verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth. Don't be quick to speak. And let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, since God is greater than you and the principle is according to the, what you speak in his ear, that's what he's going to deal with you about. That's the way that he will deal with you. Make sure what you say counts. Now, folks, Solomon is writing this stuff after he's tried everything in the world and failed miserably. Started off as the wisest man on the earth, the richest man on the earth, and then starts taking all the stuff of the world unto himself. Says, well, the way that for me to enjoy everything here is to sample it all and winds up just a mess. Finally, at the end of his days, he comes back to the Lord. And in those circumstances, he starts trying to tell people, don't do what I did. He starts trying to give them wisdom, the wisdom that he should have held to all of his life, but didn't. This idea that you can only relate to people if you've been in their shoes. Solomon says, don't get in their shoes. Stick with the truth. Amen. Well, we need to just experience what's out there, Pastor Mike. Solomon did that ahead of you and says, don't be stupid like him. Verse 2 again, be not rash with your mouth and let not your heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you are upon earth. That means he's greater than you. Therefore, let your words be few. Skip down with me to verse 6. Suffer not your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? You know what he's saying? Another translation says it this way. Don't talk like that in front of your angel. Which is exactly what happened in Numbers chapter 13. 
Now, that's not the only place it happened. It happened in a number of other places. But the point is, the angel is hearkening under the voice of God's word. Remember Psalm 103, verse 20? Blessed be ye his angels that excel in strength or mighty in strength, that hearken unto the voice of his word. Where do they hear the voice of God's word? From your mouth. They hearken. In other words, they're put to work by the voice of God's word coming from your mouth. That's why you put your angels to work by speaking his word and obeying his word. Now, there's a number of other places in the Bible we can pick any number of them to talk about where people provoked angels. One good example is in uh, Luke chapter 1, where John the Baptist's father is approached by an angel and says, you're going to have a son in your old age, and he's going to be John the Baptist. Well, didn't call him John the Baptist. He said his name's going to be John. And Zechariah says, nobody in my family's named John. Why would we want to name him John? And the angel says he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah asked the question, and he says, oh, how do I know you're telling me the truth? And the angel says, this is going to be the sign to you that I'm telling you the truth. You're going to be dumb for nine months until the child is born. Now, folks, he got off pretty easy. Seriously. He got off pretty easy. Then you remember the story when the child is born, everybody in the family starts arguing about what are we going to name this child? What are we going to name this child? Elizabeth, the mother, already knows what the angel has said. So he says, well, we're going to name him John. And the family starts saying, nobody in our family is named John. What do you want to name him John for? That doesn't fit. No way. Well, Zechariah doesn't speak anymore, but we'll ask him. Give him a piece of paper and a pen. What's his name? He writes down, John. And all of a sudden, his mouth is opened. He provoked the angel by questioning his instruction. But in Luke chapter 1, there's another example. Right there in the same chapter where the angel appears to Mary. And the angel says, you're going to have a child. Now, her only question is, how is this possible? Not, how do I know you're telling me the truth? Her question is, how can this be, seeing I have not known a man? Her question is nothing like Zechariah's question. Zechariah is saying, "Uh, how do I know this is true? Her question is very simple, simply this. How can that happen since it takes a man and a woman to have a child and I haven't been with a man? And he simply says, the Holy Ghost shall overshadow you. What is her response? She says, be it unto me according according as you have spoken. Be it unto me according to your word. Two examples. Angels sent with the same word about a child being born. One provokes the angel and winds up dumb, unable to speak for nine months, not by sickness or disease or anything like that. Just the hand of the Lord was upon him to keep his mouth shut. I have no doubt, but that that was to keep Zechariah from messing up the plan of God by talking against it. Much in the same way that Joshua sends the people of Israel around the city of Jericho and commands them not to say a word for seven days. Not don't say a word while we're in front of the city. Don't say a word for seven days. I'd like to try that for an experiment. Do you know how few people would make it? It'd be a fun week for me. Nothing much different, except I wouldn't be preaching. I have no doubt that that's the same thing that Joshua did. Joshua realized, wait a minute, when these people talked 40 years ago, that's when they messed things up. We are not going to provoke this angel again. And remember, the angel shows up before they ever go across the Jordan River. The captain of the Lord's host was there, and Joshua says, are you with us or against us? And the angel says, take your shoes off or you're standing on holy ground. Same angel. Same one that was sent to go before them before them 40 years earlier. Same one's in operation. I wonder what he did. I wonder if it was the angel that caused the walls of Jericho to fall. Bible doesn't say so. But the angel was involved somewhere or another, wasn't he? See, that's what I said a couple of weeks ago. The Bible doesn't tell us everything that angels do. We're left to wonder. But it would certainly fit, wouldn't it? It's certainly a possibility. You remember Lot? Bible tells us we looked at this. We looked at the angels being the ones that carry out the plan of God where they destroyed Sodom. The angels show up. What's the first thing they do? They go to Lot and his wife and finally say, look, God sent us here to destroy the city, but we can't, we can't do it until we get you out of here. Let's go. And then the one thing that they say is do not turn around and look at the city. Do not turn around and look at the city when we leave. What did Lot's wife do? 
She turned around and looked at the city and turned into a pillar of salt. What did she do? She provoked the angel and failed to receive the deliverance that the angel was sent to give them. Now, I want you to see something else in line with this. Turn with me over to Luke. Uh, where is this? Uh, Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Oh, my goodness. Well, I guess my question about am I finishing tonight is over. I'm already out of time. Not even halfway through. Okay, Luke chapter 17. Let's start reading in verse... uh, Oh, let's start reading verse 22. We can't finish this, so we'll just get this in context. Jesus said unto his disciples... Eh, well, we better, better back up to verse 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God comes not with observation or with outward show. In other words, kingdom of God is not something you're always going to be able to see from the outside. Now, obviously, when you're talking about the kingdom of God, the Pharisees are talking about God coming to establish his reign upon the earth. God coming to establish Israel as a free nation once again. They didn't understand that that was a spiritual freedom. They did not understand that it was something that that would be uh, started from the inside. And that's what Jesus explains. The kingdom of God doesn't come with an outward show. They're looking for an outward show. They're looking for the angels to come out with flaming swords. Just like Jesus will come back at the end of the tribulation period. That's what they're looking for. They're totally oblivious to salvation, righteousness that comes through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. They're totally oblivious to the, to the tribulation period that's going to happen before Jesus comes. They don't know any of those things. Those are things that are spiritually understood, and we wouldn't have known them either except we got saved and the Holy Ghost helped us understand the Word. So he says, The kingdom of God comes not with outward show or with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Within can also say, be translated among you. Jesus could be talking about himself. He could be talking about the Spirit of God that changes you and makes you born again and the righteousness that comes into your nature. I think he's talking about both. And then he said to his disciples, not the Pharisees, but the disciples, he explains something about the end of them. The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you shall not see it. There's going to be days where you look back and say, boy, wasn't it great when Jesus was here? But I'll be gone. And they shall say to you, see here or see there. Go not after them nor follow them. In other words, he's saying other people will say, well, the Messiah is over here. Jesus has come back and he's operating over here. He said, don't listen to any of that. That's not how it's going to work. Nobody's going to have a special lock on the power of God or the work of God. That's not how it's going to work. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so also shall the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, he's saying, when I come back, Everybody's going to know. Now, when he's talking about coming back, he's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about coming back in power and glory. He said, everybody's going to see that. Not everybody sees the rapture. Everybody knows about it, but not everybody necessarily sees it. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of his generation. Talking about his sacrifice. Now, prior to Jesus' return which would include the days of the church, the church age, the days we live in. Notice he tells us some things that are be signs. He said, and as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, and they were given and married until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, the people didn't know what was going on around them. God was providing deliverance for them, and nobody took advantage of it. He's talking about his sacrifice. He's talking about going to the cross. He's saying, look at the Pharisees, look at the people around. They're living their lives. They're doing their normal thing. And they don't have any idea that I'm here as the Messiah. The same thing's true where the rapture is concerned. People are living their lives. They're going about their business. Let me ask you a question, folks. With the signs that the Bible tells us about the end, how is it that people are not concerned about Jesus coming back? I look around and I think, how could you possibly not be concerned about Jesus coming back? I don't know how soon he's coming back, but how long can we go the way things are going? Either things are going to have to slow down in a hurry or things are going to continue to speed up or, if nothing else, keep going on the same pace and the world's going to destroy itself. Jesus has got to be coming back soon. Now, I don't know which one of those it is. 
I don't get too wound up about what I see in the news anymore. Well, maybe these scandals will change things in the political scene. Yeah, and? You looking for somebody to come in riding on a white horse and save us all? It's not going to happen, folks. The other side doesn't even have somebody to put up and say, this is our guy. So what hope can we hope for? What hope do we really have in politics? And, and the Bible's true when it says man will get worse and worse. It doesn't just say evil men will get worse and worse. It says men will get worse and worse. The more I see people wrapped up in the things around them, whether it's business, whether it's making money, whether it's politics, whether it's whatever it is, I'm wondering to myself, how can you possibly be? And these are Christians I'm talking about. I'm not talking about unsaved people. I'm wondering how in the world can you not know that Jesus is coming back? How can you not see the things that are happening in the world, particularly in the Middle East, and recognize that Jesus is on the edge of the, of, of the throne room of God to come back? How can you possibly not know that? How can Christians be so oblivious to the days and the times that we live? Well, folks, the answer is simple, and that is they're distracted. That's what this is talking about where the days of Noah were concerned. They're just living their lives. Nothing wrong with marrying and giving in marriage. Nothing wrong with eating and drinking. Nothing wrong with doing the stuff they're doing. It's just a normal part of life. But they fail to recognize the day and the time that they lived in. See the point? Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 28. Likewise also it was in the days of Lot. They did eat. They drank. They bought. They sold. They planted. They built it. What is he saying? He's saying eating and drinking. Buying and selling. Merchandising. Business in other words. Planning and building. Business as usual. People are going about their lives expecting tomorrow to come. But there's going to come a day where tomorrow will not come for them. At least not in the same way it was. But in the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day in which he shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Now, why in the world would Jesus tell us that signs of the end? Now, the destruction he's talking about, the destruction doesn't happen after Jesus comes back in his glory. The destruction happens after Jesus comes back for the church and the tribulation begins. So where he's talking about the days of Lot, he's got to be talking about the tribulation. Or, I'm sorry, the rapture and the tribulation to follow. Got to be. Because the destruction doesn't happen when Jesus comes back in his glory. Jesus comes back in his glory and sets up the the thousand-year reign here on the earth where he rules with a rod of iron. He doesn't destroy the earth. The destruction comes during that seven years of tribulation. Right? So what's he talking about? He's talking about being destroyed. He's talking about fire and brimstone. Those are tribulation events. So the, the, the deliverance that came to Lot and his family by the hands of the angels is a type of what Jesus is talking about regarding the rapture. And he says, remember Lot's wife. What'd she do? She provoked the angel. She disobeyed his voice and therefore forfeited the deliverance that was offered to her, that she had already begun to to operate in. I have no doubt that it was the pull. I don't think it was curiosity. I don't think she just wanted to turn around and say, I wonder what fire and brimstone looks like. I think she's looking back at my home. That's where my life was. I think she's being pulled back to the things of the world. It's talking about the same distraction that he refers to in the days of Noah. Don't be distracted. You can get distracted and provoke your angel and miss out on everything that God has for you as far as the promised land. Are you out there? Okay, where do I stop? Um, Let me give you one. can Can I have five more minutes? If I can finish this first part. So that next week we just kind of go back and summarize it. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24. Remember the first way that I said is three parts to put your angels to work. Number one, speak the word. Number two, obey the word. And the third part of it is send your angels forth. Let me, um, uh, let me tell you a story. 
there's a, a, a minister friend. Well, he's not really a friend. He's an acquaintance. I don't know him very well, but I heard him, I heard of the story that he, that he told. He was, uh, uh, experiencing some real difficulty with finances in his ministry. And so he was in a hotel room, he was in a certain town, uh, ministering and, and, uh, between meetings or something when he was in the hotel room. He's just praying about finances, just praying, 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 all, all by himself in the hotel room. And all of a sudden he, he feels somebody else in the room. You know how you just have a sense sometimes? He just felt somebody else in the room and it startled him. He had his eyes closed to so it, startled him. And he opened his eyes and there's a great big old angel standing in the room right next to him. Just looking at him. Well, he's looking back. So they're kind of in a staring contest. He doesn't say anything. The angel doesn't say anything. He said, he said later on, he said, I don't know why I didn't ask him, what are you here for? I, I'm pretty sure I know who you are. And that, that much was kind of obvious to him, but he didn't ask him anything. He didn't say anything, but because he'd been praying about his finances, all of a sudden he just said, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's what he was praying. It's what was on his heart. That's what came out of his mouth. He said, this angel took off like a rocket fires into the sky. Not a word was spoken other than what he said. What did he do? He spoke the word of God and it sent that angel out like a shot. Genesis chapter 24. Isaac needs a wife. Abraham's son, the son of promise, needs a wife. And uh, let's see, where do we want to start? Let's start in verse 1. We won't read the whole thing, but a little bit. Abraham was old, Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that he ruled, o- that ruled over all he had, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. In other words, you're going to have to swear an oath to me. I've got an assignment for you, and you're going to have to swear an oath to me. This is a blood oath. This is something you break this, and curse be upon you. He said, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son or for my son, of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and unto my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. How would you like the servant to go pick your wife? How much worse could it be than the way we're doing it today? Anyway, verse 5. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring the son again and thy son again unto the land from which thou camest? Here's what the servant is saying. He's saying, Abraham, wait a minute. I'm glad to go do what you want me to tell, what you're telling me to do and what you want. But no woman is going to come without seeing your son. Do you want me to take Isaac with me to this land to find the, the wife that you're looking for? And then bring them both back here together? And Abraham says, Beware that thou bring not my son thither again. In other words, don't even think about taking Isaac with you. Now, folks, whether you know this or not, that makes the job a lot harder. How many of you have ever had somebody try to fix you up with somebody and you found out it wasn't as advertised? (laughs) The Internet may be a good example of that today. Don't even think about taking Isaac with you. Verse verse 7, the Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and which spake unto me and that swear unto me, saying unto thy seed, will I give thee this land? He, God, will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife unto my son from thence. In other words, he's saying, I want you to go find the woman, but the angel is going to prepare the way. You remember the story? He goes to the land. That uh, Abraham tells him to. He comes to the well and he says, oh, goodness gracious. How in the world am I going to find a woman in this desert place? I know. We need to find a good worker. And he asks God for something. Let's start reading in verse. um, Where is it? Verse 12. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water and let it come to pass that the angel to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee that I may drink. And she shall say, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. Let the same be she that hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and thereby shall I know that thou hast shown kindness unto my master. So what I want you to see is, I want you to see how the angel operates. I want you to see how the, the, the servant operates. Abraham says, the angel will go before thee. Does the angel say, okay, we're going to have to show him to me? Not necessary. He knows about his, his uh, master. 
He knows what God has done for him. I'll read to you in just a few minutes. I'll read to you what he says about this, about how God has blessed his master and so forth. But he says, okay, now, Lord, notice the servant is not focusing on the angel. The angel has a job to do. He's been commissioned by Abraham to go do a work. Abraham doesn't say, I prayed. God told me that the angel would do this. He said, God will send his angel. Why? Because Abraham has a covenant with God. When Abraham asks God to do something, God does it. Why are angels spirit servants for us? So that the blessing of Abraham might come on us. In other words, we have the same right, the same covenant promise, the same covenant rights to send our angels forth to carry out God's will. Now, you can't send the angels out just to do whatever you want. Angels, go find me a parking place. I'm not sure there are parking place angels. Now, if you've got parking place faith, that's fine. That's okay with me, but... What do you expect the angel to do? Is parking lots full? Are you going to move a car off? See, I think a lot of people have goofy ideas about what God does and the way he does it. Now, don't get me wrong. I've prayed for parking places and gotten one. But it's not because an angel did something, at least that I know of. I mean, if an angel blew up the car, you still couldn't use the parking place, you know? So, but people get kind of strange ideas about this. Abraham simply said, the angel will go forth. How do you know? I mean, this seems to be in response to the servant saying, should I take Isaac with me? Don't you dare take him. The angel will go. Okay. So he gets there and he says, okay, Lord, I'm going to need to find a woman. So have the woman that offers not only to to give me water, but my camel's water. Let her be the one. Rebecca comes by and does exactly that. So he, the the servant goes to her house and he tells the, the father about what he's there for. Notice verse 34. He wouldn't eat until he told him what his mission was. He said, I am Abraham's servant. And the Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and men servants and maid servants and camels and asses. In other words, he's saying, God's the reason that Abraham is so blessed. And Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when she was old, and unto him hath he given all that he hath. He's looking, Isaac's looking pretty good. He's the only son. He's going to get all this stuff. And my master made me swear, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but thou shalt go unto my father's house, unto my kindred, and take a wife unto my son. Okay, he's family. That's point number two. That's good. And I said unto my master, Peradventure, the woman will not follow me. And then he said unto me, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with thee and prosper thy way. And thou shalt take a wife from my son of my kindred and of my father's house. Then shalt thou be clear from this my oath when thou comest to my kindred. And if they will not give thee one, you shall be clear from my oath. In other words, I'm letting the angel do the job. The servant is saying the angel is here preparing the way for me. My job's done whether you say yes or no. I've obeyed my master. So I came from this day to the well, blah, blah, blah. Here's what happened. Here's what uh, took place. Then he says in verse 49, and now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that. So I may return to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing proceedeth from the Lord. We cannot speak unto thee bad or good. In other words, the angel did his job. So they said, we're going to have to ask Rebecca about this. They go and ask Rebecca, tell her the story. She says, yeah, I'll go. Folks, that's got to be God. Angel, the angel was sent out by Abraham. Well, if Abraham can send out angels and we're heirs of salvation so that we can have the same covenant relationship that Abraham had and even better, then we can send out angels too. One final story, I'll tell you this, then I'll, I'll turn loose. You can close your Bibles. That means I have to quit. Brother Hagin said that uh, the way that the Lord taught him, taught him finances was he was on the road. This was many, many years ago. He said his ministry needed $150 a week. And that doesn't sound like a lot of money now, but that was all the money in the world back then. He needed that for, for his traveling expenses. He needed that to take care of the home that he had and to take care of his wife and his kids and so forth. So he needed $150 a week. And, and even then, that sounded like a huge amount of money. So he wouldn't tell pastors and other people what his needs were. Sometimes they would ask him. And there was only one time that he finally said, all right, here it is, you asked. And the guy almost had a heart attack when he told him the number. So he said, that's it. I shouldn't have told you. You asked me. You pressured me. You know, forget it. 
But he said that the Lord appeared to him one time. He was talking to him about finances. Brother Hagin was talking to the Lord about finances. And he said to him, he said, uh, Lord, you said if you be willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. He said, I was doing a lot better when I was pastoring a church than I'm doing out here on the road, having obeyed what you told me to do. He said, you know, my needs aren't being met. My family's not adequately clothed or fed or anything else. It, it, this isn't working. And, and the Lord corrected him on a couple of things. First of all, he said, yeah, that, the scripture says if you be willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. He said, Lord, you know I've been obedient. He said, yeah, but you haven't been willing. Brother Hagin said it took me two seconds to get willing. He said, don't you tell me it takes a long time to get willing because I know better. He said, I made one adjustment. I said, okay, that's it. I'm willing. I'm, I'm ready to go now. Lord, you know my attitude's changed. My, my position's changed, so now I'm in position. He said, yeah, that's right. He said, now I'm going to teach you how to get the finances that you need. He said, quit praying about money. And Brother Hagin, that's all he said for a moment. Brother Hagin said, well, if I'm not going to pray about money, what am I going to do? I thought that's the way I got the money to come. He says, no, claim the money that you need. He said, when you're praying for money, you're asking me to do something from heaven. He said, the money, I, he said, there's no money in heaven. If I was to give money from heaven, it would be counterfeit. The money you need is down here on the earth. Well, that's true, isn't it? What are we asking God for money for? The money we need's here. And there's plenty of it. So he said, here's what you do. Claim the money you need. Then, step number one, claim the money that you need. If it's $150 a week, say, I claim $150 a week in the name of Jesus. Step number two, he said, tell the devil to take his hands off your money. Satan, you take your hands off my money. He didn't say take your hands off all the money in the world. All the money in the world's not his. But he's claimed $150 a week, so that's his. He said, step number three, he said, send your angels out to get it. Now, folks, I'm not telling you to build a doctrine of what Brother Hagin was told by Jesus. It was his vision. It was his experience. But it certainly does line up with the principles of Scripture, doesn't it? They are ministering spirits. And that's what Brother Hagin questioned about. He said, what do you mean send my angels forth? He said, I've never heard anything like that before in my life. And the Lord said, have you not read that they are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for, not to, but for those who shall be heirs of salvation? Brother Hagin said, I'd never seen that. I always thought it said two. And, that's, and he told the Lord that. He said, I thought it said two. And he said, no, it says four. He said, they're servants for you. So send them forth to bring the money in. He said, it's just that simple. He said, from that day, Brother Hagin said, Lord, I claim $150 a week. Satan, take your hands off my money and go ministering spirits that cause the money to come. He said, I said it with fear and trembling in my voice. But it worked. He said, from that day forward. I would claim the same $150 as long as that was what his needs were. And there were times where there would be uh, emergencies or other things arise, and he'd need more than that. Sometimes he'd need twice that or whatever. He would claim the amount of money that he needed. He would tell the devil to take his hands off of it, and he'd send the ministering spirits out to cause the money to come. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that a lot of the church world says the devil makes them do stuff. In other words, they claim that their behavior was influenced by the devil. Now, In my opinion, about 95% of that is people just making excuses for what they wanted to do anyway. However, we all know situations in our lives where we have been influenced wrongly. That we look back at it, may not have known it at the time, but we look back at it now and we realize that was the devil trying to push me to do the wrong thing, right? Well, if the devil, who is an angel, a fallen angel, if the devil can influence people to do wrong, don't you think angels that are working by the decree And according to the plan and the purpose and the will of God can influence people to do the right. Don't you think they can influence people to obey what God speaks to their heart to do where giving is concerned? Where helping other people is concerned? Where financial matters are concerned? Folks, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that we really never pointed out in this way. But there's a lot of stuff in the Bible where the angels fed people and provided for them. That's the same as money. It's material and natural provision. Angels are sent to the earth to help us, to serve us as we serve God. That's sending your angels out. So the number one way, well, the first way, I won't say one way is more important than another, but the first way that we can identify from the Scripture to get your angel to work is number one, or the first part of it is to speak the Word, the second part of it is to obey the Word, and the third part is to send them forth to do the job that God sent them to do. Amen?
Okay, we'll stop there and pick up the other two next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that the ministering spirits are sent forth to minister for us because we are heirs of salvation. Thank you, Father, that just as the angel was commissioned to bring Israel into the promised land, so also are our angels commissioned to bring us into the victory that Jesus has purchased and won through his cross and his sacrifice. Thank you, Father, that those angels bring us into healing. They bring us into prosperity and abundance. They bring us into the finances and the provisions and the natural things that we need to fulfill what God has put in our heart to do as individual members of the body of Christ and as a church family. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you for letting me go over time. Have a great week.